I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Have you ever heard of Forever Chemicals? They last a very long time. What are they doing in fast food paper packaging? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. PFAS stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. These forever chemicals are ubiquitous in our environment. You find them in cosmetics, water-resistant clothing, stain-repellent carpets, and food packaging. PFAS chemicals are found in water, air, and soil. Do they have negative effects on our health? We talk with one of the country's leading toxicologists about the health effects of PFAS. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, what can we do about forever chemicals? In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, one of the features of COVID-19 that makes it different from most other infections is the risk of long COVID. Many previously healthy people report fatigue, brain fog, breathing difficulties, heart problems, dizziness, or migraines months after having recovered from the acute infection. Doctors have been blindsided by the number of people who are now suffering from persistent symptoms of long COVID. According to the U.S. Government Accountability Office, up to 23 million Americans may be affected. Many have been unable to return to work. Physicians don't yet know what the best treatment might be for long COVID. The National Institutes of Health have initiated a program called RECOVER to coordinate research on long COVID treatments. Scientists wonder whether COVID vaccinations can reduce the likelihood of such long-lasting symptoms. Studies from the UK, Israel, and the U.S. have produced different answers to that question. A study from the VA in the U.S., based on patient records, concluded that vaccination affords only a modest 13% reduction. However, a study of more than a million Britons using a mobile phone app to report their symptoms indicated that vaccinated people were only half as likely to report persistent problems after infection. Part of the reason that studies disagree may have to do with their disparate designs or their definitions of long COVID. In some protocols, people were counted as having long COVID if they reported symptoms a month later, while in others, symptoms didn't count unless they lasted at least six months. Scientists point out that vaccines definitely help prevent serious infection, and that in itself may reduce the chance of developing long COVID. Even people who have been vaccinated and boosted come down with COVID from time to time. Scientists know quite a bit at this point about how SARS-CoV-2 spreads from one person to another. Crowded indoor events are a prime opportunity for the virus, especially if many people are not wearing masks. Ventilation can make a difference, but it's difficult for most people to judge whether or not a venue has adequate air exchange to be helpful. The more infectious version of Omicron, dubbed BA2.12.1, also spreads readily within households. 
Currently, about 50% of people exposed to an infection within their household come down with the coronavirus. That compares to a 30% infection rate early in the pandemic. Unvaccinated people are particularly vulnerable. How effective is intensive blood pressure management for older patients with hypertension? A meta-analysis of six trials set out to answer that question. There were more than 27,000 participants with a mean age of 70. Getting systolic blood pressure below 130 significantly reduced the chance of a heart attack or stroke. It took a long time, however, to see the benefits. To prevent one serious cardiovascular event, 500 people would have to take high doses of one or more types of blood pressure-lowering medication for at least nine months. After approximately three years of treatment, one person out of 100 would benefit from intense blood pressure management. Such treatment is not innocuous. In older people, lower blood pressure can result in dizziness and falls. Intensive treatment may also affect kidney function. Consequently, the researchers conclude that this effort is worthwhile for someone with a life expectancy of at least three years, but probably not for a person whose life expectancy is one year or less. Nearly a 1,000 people suffer sudden cardiac arrest every day in the United States. That adds up to more than 350,000 a year. When the heart stops beating, death is imminent. Most people die before they get to the hospital, and half of those hospitalized die before discharge. If they can survive and be discharged, though, their chance of doing well long-term is pretty good. A comprehensive, systematic review in JAMA Cardiology shows that almost two-thirds who survive their initial hospital stay are alive 10 years later. CPR makes a difference. That's why automated external defibrillators should be available, and people should be well-trained in how to use them. And that's the health news in the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. We are surrounded by chemicals. How many is a bit of a mystery. The Environmental Protection Agency lists more than 80,000 in its database, but that does not include everything, and few have been well tested for their effects on human health. One category that's especially worrisome is often referred to as forever chemicals. These are per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS for short. The first one was created in 1938. At that time, chemists knew they were sturdy, but they didn't know they would resist breakdown so strongly. Later in the show, we'll talk with science journalist Kevin Loria about his article in Consumer Reports about PFAS in food packaging. First, though, we turn to Dr. Linda Birnbaum. She is a toxicologist and was director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program for many years. Prior to that, she directed environmental health research at the EPA. Dr. Birnbaum served as president of the Society of Toxicology and chaired the Division of Toxicology at the American Society for Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. She's a scholar-in-residence at Duke University. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Linda Birnbaum. I am so thrilled to be back. I think I gave your last interview just before the pandemic 
really got going in March of 2020. So it's a real honor that I'm able to speak with you again. And we are thrilled to have you. But before we really get into this very important subject, our listeners would like to know what is a toxicologist? You you are arguably one of America's foremost toxicologists, but I don't think a lot of people have much experience with toxicology. Toxicology is really the science of safety. Some people say it's the science of poisons because the word toxin actually comes from a Greek word meaning poison. But I think that what we're really trying to do is understand what it is, whether it's drugs or whether it's environmental chemicals, how they impact us so that we can prevent any harm from coming. Some famous scientists a long time ago basically said it's all in the dose, especially when it comes to medications. What's that about? Well, that's Paracelsus, who in the 1500s said that the dose makes the poison. And toxicologists have long cited that as their mantra. But I think many of us realize today that it's more complicated than that. It's not only the dose, it's the timing. It's the timing not only, you know, do you receive it once or multiple times? It's also what stage of your life are you receiving it? Are you receiving it, you know, as a child, as an infant? Are you receiving it through breast milk or through the placenta? Are you achieving it when you're an adult? All of those different kinds of things can impact the dose that you actually receive and how, whether that causes an effect or not. Dr. Birnbaum, there was a time when the industry, whether it was the chemical industry or the pharmaceutical industry, they blamed everything on the dose. I, I kind of remember some reference to an artificial sweetener where the industry said, well, you'd have to drink 600 cans of diet soda a day to have any kind of problems. And, and everybody went, oh, I'll never have that opportunity. I couldn't drink 600 cans or whatever the number was. But I think what we've learned of late is that even relatively small doses over a lifetime, and some of these chemicals, in fact, we are exposed to them over a lifetime, might have negative consequences. I think that's absolutely true. While it's important that the dose makes the poison, and as I said, it can be modified by age and how frequent, what we've learned is that for some things, very low doses can have adverse effects on our health. For example? For example, things that impact our hormone systems, you know, our, our hormones, whether we're talking about, say, estrogens, which are the female hormones, are active at tiny amounts in our body in the picomolar range or the nanomolar range. So chemicals that can interfere, say, with the estrogen system can often be present at similar, very, very low doses. I think some of the confusion, shall I say, about needing very high doses comes from the fact that at least for chemicals, I'm not talking about drugs here as much, we learned a lot from occupational exposures where workers were being exposed to very high levels of chemicals, and you could clearly see an effect. Today, for much of toxicology work, we're 
studying small animals. And you always have to give a small animal a greater dose to achieve the same internal concentration, or we could talk about the same blood level as you do to a much bigger animal or a person. So even studies where people will say, well, that's done at such a high dose, it's irrelevant. You've got to take a step back and say, maybe not. Maybe that dose to achieve that level in a human, the same level, you've got to use a much higher dose to your animals. Dr. Birnbaum, what we want to talk about today is something people call forever chemicals, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. What can you tell us about these chemicals? Well, um, we call them PFAS, and all I can tell you is that is a horrendous name that a number of us kind of came up with about four or five years ago. I mean, it's a tremendous class of chemicals. Let's go back to the name, the fluoropoly, either poly or per alkyls. What that means is that there are lots of fluorine atoms. Fluorine is is a element on the periodic table and also carbon. And the fluorine-carbon bond barely exists in nature. It is one of the strongest bonds that exists. It's very difficult to break once it's formed. So when you say per polyfluoroalkyl, what you mean is you've got lots of fluorines on carbon molecules, often in a chain. Sometimes it can be more complicated than that. But the property of the carbon-fluorine bonds is what makes these chemicals into the forever chemicals that we're dealing with today. And what are they used for? Oh, you name it. <laughs> they are used in some, they're, they're basically um, provide water repellency, stain resistance. They are used in all kinds of electronic equipment. They are used in all kinds of, or have been used um, in all kinds of textiles. They've been used in your nonstick pans. They've been used in your waterproof not only your waterproof jackets and and boots, but also your waterproof, for example, furniture uh, coverings. They are used sometimes on um, ropes. They're used in dental floss. They've also been used extensively in products called the air fire filming foam or AFFF. And these are a huge group of chemicals that have been used to put out especially oil and grease fires and have been used extensively since the 1960s and have led to major contamination in our drinking water and even our groundwater. Well, whenever I see a forest fire and there are helicopters or or larger planes flying over that forest fire and then you see them dump this massive quantity of chemicals. They're often colored red. And I'm wondering, well, are those PFAS chemicals that they're dropping? It's a good question. And to my understanding, they are not because your forest fires don't involve oil, for example, oil and grease. They're just wood. I believe that many of the um, fire suppressants that are dropped by planes contain bromine. But I don't know exactly what 
their nature is, but I believe they're not PFAS. I mean, PFAS, for example, are also used extensively in plastics. So just like phthalates, when we are getting our bottled water or perhaps our vinegar in a plastic container, there might be PFAS in that plastic. I don't know how much PFAS is present in our bottled water. I know that PFAS has been used extensively in food container material, you know, takeout kind of stuff. Um, It's used in lots of other kinds of plastics as well. You know, Joe, that's a really good question. I'm going to have to find out whether there's a lot of PFAS in our plastic bottles. There's a difference, though, between, say, the phthalates and the PFAS. And not to diminish what I see as a real risk from phthalates, which are also everywhere, the phthalates can eventually break down environmentally. And most phthalates don't last in our bodies a long time. But that's different for PFAS. Completely different. PFAS, again, there is no estimate. Nobody's been able to estimate how long these will last in our environment. Not all of the PFAS, but many of the PFAS have very long half-lives in our bodies as well. You're listening to Dr. Linda Birnbaum. She's scientist emeritus and former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program. Dr. Birnbaum is a scholar-in-residence at Duke University. After the break, we'll talk about the potential dangers of PFAS. What happens when one gets phased out? Do we know about the safety of its replacement? What do we know about the health effects of these chemicals? And why did it seem like a good idea to use chemicals that last a really long time? Didn't we learn anything from the histories of DDT or PCB or dioxins? We'll also talk with Kevin Loria about his article in Consumer Reports. It looks at PFAS in food packaging, such as cardboard containers for takeout, paper trays or plates, food wrappers and liners, molded fiber balls, single-use plates and paper bags. We don't eat packaging, so why should we care? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. 
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Today we're talking about PFAS, the so-called forever chemicals. They're widely used for nonstick, stain-repellent, or water-resistant products. You'll find these chemicals in carpets, furniture, car upholstery, and outdoor apparel. They're also found in some food packaging. How safe are they? Our guest is Dr. Linda Birnbaum. She's a toxicologist and was director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program for many years. She is a scholar in residence at Duke University. Dr. Birnbaum, later in the show, we'll be talking about food packaging and the types of food packaging that contain PFAS. But what I would like to ask you at this point is, how dangerous is it? Should I be worried? That's a wonderful question and very difficult to answer. I think these chemicals, we have a wealth of animal studies that demonstrates the toxicity of these chemicals. PFAS can affect almost every organ system that we have. They appear to, can, can have effects on the developing fetus. They have, can have effects on the infant, on the adolescent, on the pregnant woman, as well as her unborn baby, and on adults of all ages. But there's a variety of effects. These effects can occur at levels that are really quite low. And we're beginning to understand that for some of the PFAS, a few that have been studied, what we find is some of the newer replacement PFAS can cause the same effects or even worse at lower blood levels than some of the ones that we already know about and that have been in general removed from the marketplace. That sounds a little bit like the BPA-free label that we see on a lot of products these days. And then you go, okay, they got rid of BPA, but what did they put in there in place of BPA? And it sounds like what you're suggesting is that maybe the PFAS chemicals have been replaced by something that might also pose a problem. That's absolutely true. So the PFAS, for example, I'll use an example. Keymores here in North Carolina, which was a spinoff from DuPont, makes a chemical called Gen X. Gen X was a replacement for one of the best studied PFAS, something called PFOA, which the sole manufacturer in the U.S. Um, voluntarily agreed with EPA to stop manufacturing in about 2009 to 2013 or 14. So, no one's intentionally making that PFOA, yet Gen X instead. And what experimental studies are showing, we don't have any human data yet. Uh, we do have some data from human cells. But what we find is in experimental animals, very, very similar concentrations of Gen X do the same thing as PFOA. So it is another unfortunate substitution, and there are many, many of them. Uh, with the AFFF I mentioned, PFOA used to be in them. PFOS used to be in these kinds of foams. 
But starting around 2002, manufacturers stopped using PFOS in the foams and substituted with related chemicals that just had a few fewer carbons in them. Those chemicals, again, can do the same thing. So we do have this problem of unfortunate substitution. Sometimes the chemicals that have been substituted have very short half-lives in our bodies, but they can be metabolized to that PFOA or PFOS type chemical, which has very long half-lives in our body. Well, speaking of our bodies, do we all have some of these PFAS chemicals floating around? The answer is yes. CDC has been in their biannual report card on what's in the American public, has been reporting that essentially all Americans have these chemicals in their body since about their first first looked for them in about 2002, 2004. What we have seen is the two, the PFOA and the PFOS, uh, which are no longer being intentionally produced. Those levels in the Americans' uh, blood has started to decrease. But what we have now is a little bit of data showing that some of the replacement compounds their levels are going up. What are the implications? Do we know what the health effects are? You have pointed out that the answer to that question is really complicated, depending (laughs) on when somebody might have been exposed. Were they an infant? Were they an adolescent, etc.? But is there an overview that things that we might worry about? Well, these chemicals have been associated some from epidemiology, which are observational human studies, some from what we know from our experimental studies with cancer. There was a very large contamination of drinking water in West Virginia and Ohio. And there's been an extensive study done there of over 70,000 people who have been followed. And what they found is that there were clear associations with kidney cancer and testicular cancer. There were effects on cholesterol levels, elevated cholesterol. There were effects on thyroid hormones. There was a hypertension, increase in hypertension during pregnancy. And there was an increased risk of autoimmune disease. Now, I should mention the immune system because we have a lot of epidemiology studies showing that especially children, but also adults, who have elevated levels of PFAS in their blood. And sometimes it may have largely been driven by their mother's exposure. What we find is they have immune suppression. They are not as able to mount a vigorous response to vaccination. And there are actually at least four, if not more now, studies looking at COVID and PFAS where there are associations being reported between both uh, susceptibility to disease and severity of disease. Dr. Birnbaum, I have one question. Why? Why do we continue to make chemicals that will never go away, or certainly not in our lifetimes? Didn't we learn anything from DDT, DDE, dioxins, PCBs? I mean, all of these chemicals that we have been exposed to over the decades that have caused a lot of hardship, why haven't we learned something and when are we going to do something about PFAS? 
Well, you know, all I can say is we appear to be poor learners. What has happened is since the PFOA and PFOS in the U.S. are not being intentionally made, and I'm saying that because, as I mentioned, some there are some things that can break down. Some of the polymers um, can break down to give you those compounds. But industry has largely moved to things like Gen X, which has a much shorter half-life in our bodies, not in the environment. And again, when we start studying Gen X, what we find is that you get a similar response at a similar internal dose. So I've actually ended a talk that I gave recently where I actually say just what you said. Didn't we learn 60 years ago, 70 years ago, 50 years ago, that we don't want chemicals that will never go away? So how are we going to learn? What are we learning? I think part of the problem is our regulatory system. We've known since the early 2000s for sure that PFOA and PFOS are problem chemicals. So I think one of our problems is it takes too long once we realize we've got a problem to do something about it. Dr. Linda Birnbaum, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. My pleasure. It's good to be back. You've been listening to Dr. Linda Birnbaum. She's a toxicologist and former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program. Dr. Birnbaum has served as president of the Society of Toxicology and chaired the Division of Toxicology at the American Society for Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. She's a scholar-in-residence at Duke University. We turn now to Kevin Loria. He is a science journalist who covers health for consumer reports, including environmental health, health privacy, and fitness. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Kevin Loria. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Kevin, we are so impressed with your article in Consumer Reports, The Dangerous Chemicals in Your Fast Food Wrappers. And yet, as I look at this picture, I mean, it's it's beautiful. I mean, there's this bowl with onions and looks like cucumbers and tomatoes. And there's a Chick-fil-A wrap. Uh, there's a Big Mac. There's French fries from Checkers Rallies. There's Nathan's. There's, oh, yeah, here's one. It, it says Arby's. We have the sweets. And as I look at all these packages I think, but, but Kevin, we don't eat the food packaging. We don't eat the wrappers. Why should we care? Yeah, so that is a really good point. And <laughs> I think, yes, obviously we don't eat the packaging. But the presence of these chemicals, these PFAS chemicals in packaging matters for a couple of reasons. So for one, it's possible that PFAS can migrate from packaging into food. Uh, certain factors make this more likely. It happens with food that's salty, fatty, or acidic. It can happen with time and with heat. So, you know, these factors can cause these chemicals to migrate into food. But the other part of the story that's really important there is that the production and disposal of this packaging also releases these chemicals into the environment. So the factories that make them, the water from those factories, the wastewater, even if it's treated, these chemicals end up entering water systems, end up on soil. And when you throw away your packaging, no matter what you do with it, if you try to recycle it, uh, 
And if it goes to a landfill or if it's incinerated, these chemicals, because they are so hard to break down, they kind of almost, that's what gives them the name forever chemicals. They almost never break down or do so extremely slowly. So these chemicals end up going from landfills into the environment and again, contaminating water and soil and basically getting into us. Kevin, can you explain to us why these chemicals are so ubiquitous in this type of packaging? And when you say salty, fatty, or acidic foods, I'm thinking, well, that describes at least half of what you'd get in any fast food restaurant, right? Sure. Yeah. And and these chemicals are used in packaging because they basically can create these barriers that are essentially, you know, grease proof or grease or water resistant. And so you know, it sounds great that you get a burger or a bag of fries or a burrito or even a salad. And, you know, you don't want salad dressing leaking through the side. You don't want burger grease or French fry. You know, you don't want grease coming through and going through the bag and onto your hands. And so using these chemicals in packaging creates this barrier. But it turns out that as we've learned that these chemicals have been linked to a number of health issues in people, there's been this question of, okay, yes, I don't want greasy hands, but I also don't necessarily want these chemicals in me. And should they be used in these settings? Now, Kevin, I was really surprised to read how many different chemicals there are that are under the umbrella of PFAS. 9,000 different chemicals? Really? Yeah. So the technical number is more than 9,000 chemicals. That said, if you look at the number of chemicals that's actually kind of being widely produced and used, I think that it's a number that's more likely in the hundreds. But even so, you're talking about a huge number of chemicals, many of which we don't know very much about. And some people could say, well, if we don't know much about them, you know, should we really be concerned? But we do have reasons to be concerned about the chemicals that we do know about. And so that's why a lot of health experts and scientists say, you know, even the ones that we know a little bit less about, well, maybe we should assume that they could cause similar health effects and should be, you know, thinking about when we use them and whether or not it's a, a reasonable or necessary use of these chemicals. Kevin, for Consumer Reports, you did an investigation of PFAS levels in the packaging from various fast food chains. Would you please tell us more about what you did and how you did it? Yes. So our scientists looked at over 100, I think it was 118 different types of food packaging. And this is packaging from fast food restaurants and from fast casual restaurants and from grocery stores. So a wide variety of places, you know, everything from your kind of typical fast food burger joint to a place where you might get, you know, a salad or a healthier option to, you know, a grocery store where you're just going to go and get, you know, what you need for your family. And what they did is they looked for first just to see if kind of the basic level of PFAS that they found in packaging. To do that test, they looked for uh, total organic fluorine, which is basically just a simple way of looking for PFAS. And then they analyzed a subset of these products to see if they could identify certain specific PFAS that were in there. So I think the basic takeaway is that they found evidence for PFAS chemicals in more than half of the items that we tested. And in about a third of these items, the 
levels exceeded the legal limit for PFAS uh, measured as total organic fluorine set in Denmark. And so this limit is meant to stop intentionally added PFAS from being in products. And I think it was in 22 products, uh, California will have a similar legal limit in place starting next year, a limit meant to keep PFAS from being intentionally added to packaging. 22 of the products exceeded the limit that California will have in place. Could you get specific about what packaging we're talking about, please? Yeah. So I can tell you that, you know, we looked at, we had packaging from McDonald's and Burger King and Nathan's. And we also looked at places like Sweetgreen and Chipotle and Whole Foods. So we wanted to look at kind of a broad selection of restaurants some of the packaging that we found, I think that, you know, basically they looked at the average levels for the different samples that we had. Yeah. So we found higher levels in items from Nathan's, Burger King, McDonald's, Kava. In other cases, we found that places that had said that they'd made an effort to phase PFAS out of their packaging, some of them seemed to be doing a pretty good job. So, you know, while we found some levels of PFAS in items that we tested from Whole Foods, only one of them exceeded the Denmark threshold and then only barely. So it seems possible that in in that case, it could have been, you know, incidental contamination potentially that is responsible for that. It wasn't at a level that a lot of experts say is the level that you would need for to show kind of intentional addition of PFAS. So we found a pretty wide variety and you know, some of the restaurants that had higher levels were these kind of fast food restaurants. There were other fast food restaurants that did better. The items that we tested from Wendy's did not have particularly high levels. But we also found PFAS in items that you might not think about as much, like paper plates uh, from Stop and Shop that had pretty high levels. And so it's hard to know when you're looking at an item whether or not it's going to have PFAS in it. You know, whether the food item that you're getting is is healthier or something that we think of as less healthy, these things can't necessarily predict whether or not PFAS is going to be in an item. You're listening to Kevin Loria. He's a science journalist who covers health for consumer reports, including environmental health, health privacy, and fitness. He's interested in stories about systems or products that harm or fail to protect individuals. After the break, we talk about some types of food packaging that contain PFAS. How can we minimize our exposure? Denmark has set a limit. In some places, food packaging contains very low levels of PFAS. Do people who eat a lot of fast food have higher blood levels of these chemicals? How can we best protect ourselves and our families? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic supplements. These supplements are made in the USA with high-quality, sustainably sourced ingredients. Originally developed in Germany, Kaya Biotics offers three different formulations with 15 carefully selected strains of bacteria. These are designed to increase the diversity of your gut flora and support your immune system. More information at kayabiotics.com.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. When you pick up food from a fast food restaurant, some of the bags and wrappers that keep you from getting your fingers greasy while you carry it away contain oil-resistant chemicals called PFAS. What should we know about these forever chemicals? We're talking today with Kevin Loria, a science journalist who covers health for consumer reports, including environmental health, health privacy, and fitness. He wrote about PFAS in food packaging in the May issue. I was fascinated to see that the paper, what would you call that, Terry, the the paper holder for like cupcakes has PFAS. I mean, it's like, wait a minute, we're giving, you know, cupcakes for to our kids. There shouldn't be PFAS in those cupcake holders, even if it's in low levels. And also those, what would you call them? The molded fiber bowls and trays where, you know, everybody's getting bowls these days. Well, they too had some some PFAS in them, pretty high levels, relatively speaking. And I'm really concerned about some of the soup containers because, you know, a lot of times at takeout, we get our soup. And sometimes that soup has, you know, fat in it, presumably. And so it might be leaching into the soup, especially if it's hot. So do you have any recommendations, Kevin? What can we do? Yeah. So when it comes to trying to avoid PFAS in packaging, I think that what we would say is you can try to favor restaurants that have said they've made an effort to already kind of phase PFAS out of packaging. Because while we did find PFAS in some of these items, the levels on average tended to be lower. And so it indicates that, you know, at least in general, these places seem to be trying to get these chemicals out of packaging. And that seems like a a good thing to support and probably a better way to kind of limit your own exposure. You can also take items out of the packaging as soon as you can, and definitely don't reheat food in its packaging. So when it comes to food packaging, those are some of the steps you can take to limit your exposure. So, Kevin, I'd like to ask you about reheating food in the original packaging in the microwave, because, I, I you know, it's convenient in fact, a lot of the stuff we get from the frozen food department is supposed to be heated in the microwave. Is that a mistake? I think that what our scientists would say is that if you want to reduce your exposure to PFAS as much as possible, it's probably best not to reheat any of the food that you get in that prepackaged, the the, the packaging that it came in, that, you know, you want to transfer your food onto glass plate or something like that instead. And that that's a better way to reheat your food. And I know that it says to do that on some of the instructions, but I think in most cases, if you put it in a, in a glass bowl or a plate, that that's probably a fine way to do so. That's actually what we almost always do. And uh, even if you have to hunt a little bit for a a, a bowl that's going to hold the uh, the the thing because it's frozen, it doesn't fit into a normal size bowl sometimes. <laughs> I do have a question about nonstick pans. As I understand it, uh, a nonstick skillet frequently is made nonstick by applying 
a coating of something that falls into the PFAS category. Well, I remember Teflon. And I'm just curious, was the original Teflon a PFAS? Yes. So Teflon was actually, so Teflon is PTFE is the name for the the chemical that is behind it. And PTFE was actually um, quite likely the first PFAS that was ever discovered. And, you know, at first there were some different questions about what the right application was going to be. And I think there may have been some kind of looks at military use, uh, but it wasn't long before it started being used to make nonstick pans. And Teflon still, it uses PTFE, you know, PTFE is what makes Teflon Teflon. There have been other PFAS chemicals that have been used to make Teflon. Some of these have been phased out, but nonstick pans in general, the typical nonstick pan you see is still made with PFAS chemicals. Well, I'm interested because some of the uh, advertisements say that they their nonstick pans don't have PFAS, and I'm wondering, is that possible? I think that in a lot of cases, the advertising that you see will say that pans do not have PFOA or PFOS right. in them. Exactly. Right. Yes. So, An important distinction. Yes. So PFOA and PFOS are two of the PFAS chemicals that we know the most about. Um, we know a lot about them from the C8 health study, which basically looked at the effects of these chemicals that had contaminated the water system in um largely in West Virginia and I believe Ohio. And it's from that study that we learned about a lot of the negative health effects associated with PFAS. And as a result of that study, and in certain cases, this was already, uh, you know, even before then already in the works, PFOA and PFOS have largely been phased out of use and production in the United States. They still end up in items and they're still produced and used internationally, but largely manufacturers have stopped using PFOA and PFOS in the U.S. But, and here's the big but, you know, the other chemicals that are still used in nonstick pans for the most part are still PFAS chemicals. We don't know as much about them as we do about PFOS and PFOA in a lot of cases, but because they have the same function in the pan or in other products that we use them in, a lot of researchers are concerned that the replacement chemicals that we're using could have similar health effects. You mentioned that Denmark has put a legal limit of these chemicals on its food packaging products. So I'm assuming then that in other countries, or at least some other countries, you can find packaging that doesn't contain them. Is that true? Well, in a certain sense, it's hard to completely avoid all PFAS because they've been so widely produced and used for so long. They are commonly found in the environment. And so even when they're not intentionally added to substances, you do often detect some level of PFAS. You know, in food packaging, it might be there because of the use of recycled paper or for the, for, from the machines that are used to produce packaging. That said, Denmark has quite a strict legal limit on the level of PFAS or total organic fluorine, the PFAS indicator in food packaging. And from what I understand, since they've set that limit, the levels of PFAS that have been found in packaging in Denmark are uh, significantly lower. And so setting this limit appears to have made a difference there. I'm wondering if anybody has bothered to check blood levels, as a for example, of PFAS chemicals. So 
you know, if we were to go to Denmark and collect 500 samples from people there, would they be lower? And what about people who eat in fast food restaurants a lot? You know, if that's one of their main sources of um, of nutrition, would they have higher levels of PFAS than folks who are cooking fresh? So I think it's important to know. So fast food packaging or just food packaging in general is just one of the sources of PFAS exposure in our lives. And so for a lot of people, the most important exposure source might actually just be even drinking water, or it could be for certain PFAS chemicals, the carpets, you know, stain resistant carpets in a home. Um, That said, there is some research in this I'm not sure about comparing the international blood levels, but I have seen a study and reported on a study which did find that people who ate out more frequently, so fast food restaurants, other restaurants, and pizza places, tended to have, I believe that people who cooked at home more frequently as opposed to eating out tended to have lower PFAS levels in their blood. So there is an indication, perhaps, that eating out more could potentially expose people to more PFAS. But again, this is just one of the exposure points that people have. Kevin, you mentioned that drinking water might have uh, some PFAS in it. Is there a way for people to find out whether their drinking water is contaminated? Yes, absolutely. So CR Consumer Reports has actually tested drinking water and other groups have as well. I believe um, the, it, you, know, you can kind of look and see there have been tests on drinking water from different places around the country and a couple of studies done on it. And you can get a test kit to test your own drinking water at home for PFAS. If it turns out that you do have PFAS in your water, I know that uh, Consumer Reports has some recommendations for water filters that will help remove these. In certain towns, there have been uh, efforts to more broadly set up water filtration systems to remove these chemicals in towns that people know that there are these issues. You mentioned a moment ago um, carpets. And I'm, I'm guessing, you know, a lot of homes in this country, people have carpets. I'm also guessing that a lot of those carpets have stain-resistant chemicals in them, if not all of them. I mean, most people want to be able to resist stains if they spill a little coffee or some white wine or, or worse, it's red, the red wine. red wine that makes the big stain. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, are we exposed to PFAS in places that we wouldn't normally think of it? I'm also thinking about cars. I'm thinking about maybe, you know, if we have a fabric in our car seats and they have that new car smell for the first couple of months, are there stain resistant chemicals uh, in the fabric? Yeah. So I think that a lot of stain resistant products and water resistant products. So when you talk about carpets, that's one option. There's also clothing and outdoor gear. These are all potential sources of PFAS exposure. And so I know that from carpets, the uh, there's the chance that PFAS can basically come off of the carpet and become part of household dust. So that can get into us. I think it can particularly be a concern for younger kids, you know, who are playing on the ground or crawling on the ground, depending on how old they are. And so that can definitely be part of the exposure that people have. So stain and water resistant products in general are definitely considered a potential PFAS exposure source. Now, I know a lot of our listeners are going, help. I mean, these chemicals are everywhere. They're in my carpet. They're in my car. They're in my food wrappers. Um, 
what should I do about that? And perhaps more important, should I even worry? I mean, a lot of folks are going, uh, I'm not going to worry about it. I mean, they're every place. Who cares? What are they doing to me? Is there anything I even need to be concerned about? So tell us a little bit about the medical research and the health implications. Sure. So I think that in response to that question of, you know, should you be concerned and you know, you don't want people to panic, obviously. And for something like this, when you're talking about something so ubiquitous, I mean, it wouldn't be practical to do so. But the health risks that we're talking about with PFAS chemicals are basically risks due to chronic exposure and buildup of these levels over time. And so that's what researchers say you want to try to limit and that, you know, it is worth trying to limit your exposure. We do have evidence showing that PFAS exposure, so it's linked to a number of different health problems. So increased risk for certain cancers, kidney and liver damage, higher blood pressure in pregnant people, certain developmental effects in children, uh, certain effects on the reproductive system. And I think that the health effect that uh, scientists call this the most sensitive endpoint, the effect that occurs at the lowest exposure levels is a weakened immune system. And so this is shown as a a weaker response to certain childhood vaccines. So that's obviously something that's concerning. So it definitely is worthwhile to try to limit exposure if you can. And while it sounds really hard with these chemicals that are pretty ubiquitous, I think that if you think about these different aspects of life, so whether it's, you know, limiting the ways that you use certain food packaging or trying to get food packaging from places that are working to get PFAS out of it, or, you know, trying to avoid stain and water resistant fabrics when you can, and, you know, looking for items that are more washable instead. Um, there are things that you can do to reduce these exposure levels. You know, when it's something like water, it's harder, but you can get a water filtration system if you need to. Obviously, these are bigger problems that do require more than just what the individual can do. And so that's why I think you also, you can look at, you know, certain states are trying to implement stricter restrictions on PFAS levels in water or in food packaging and other items. Well, finally, the idea of what we can do ourselves, besides being thoughtful about the packaging and the clothes that we wear and the chemicals that we spray, where can we go again to test our water, especially if uh, we're on a well or even on a municipal water system? Okay, so Consumer Reports has looked at drinking water for PFAS before. And basically, you can find an EPA-certified lab or get a, a mail-in kit to test your water for PFAS. So uh, two of the tests that performed well in Consumer Reports testing uh, were one was by Simple Lab and the other was by Water Check. And so you can get your water tested. You can look and see if, you know, your municipality uh, or your local water source has this data. But if you just want to test your own water, you can get a kit yourself to look for PFAS. Any other recommendations that our listeners should be doing to try to protect themselves and their families from PFAS? Sure. So aside from being conscious about the products that you're using and trying to limit the PFAS that's in those products and trying to look for products from places that are trying to kind of take these steps to reduce exposure, you know, some experts have said that while nonstick pans are probably not releasing PFAS, if they are well-maintained, 
and not being overheated or scraped, the production and disposal of these pans still adds PFAS to the environment, which can get into us. But you know, you don't necessarily need to throw out everything that you've got, but you might want to stop using pans that are scraped and you want to make sure that you're not overheating these pans is what some experts have told me. And of course, we want to encourage everyone to read your super article in Consumer Reports, The Dangerous Chemicals in Your Fast Food Wrappers. Kevin Loria, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Kevin Loria, a science journalist who covers health for Consumer Reports, including environmental health, health privacy, and fitness. His article, titled The Dangerous Chemicals in Your Fast Food Wrappers, was published in the May issue of CR. It tells you which food packaging has the highest levels of PFAS chemicals and how to avoid them. You'll find a link to his article from our website. We spoke earlier in the show with Dr. Linda Birnbaum. She is a toxicologist and was director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program for many years. Prior to that, she directed environmental health research at the EPA. Dr. Birnbaum served as president of the Society of Toxicology and chaired the Division of Toxicology at the American Society for Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. She's a scholar in residence at Duke University. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski Engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Today's show is number 1,300. And one. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can post your comments to let us know what you think about today's interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to the newsletter, you also have regular access to our weekly podcast, and you can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. 
All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.